Hey, Rachel, what you reading? New X-Men. I figured I should study up on Nimrod. Wait, Nimrod's in New X-Men? I don't remember that at all. Well, not the Morrison New X-Men, the Yost and Kyle New X-Men, with Hellion and Mercury and Surge and all those kids. What do they have to do with Nimrod? Okay, so, remember how Rachel Summers came back in time the first time? Uh, yeah, Kate Pride sent her back during a botched raid on a Sentinel factory, right? Right, specifically the facility where they were developing something called Project Nimrod. Oh, right, and he followed her back through time and ended up saving Jaime Rodriguez. Not at first. He undershot by about 20 years and ended up in a different future, Earth 61029. At that point, he didn't have the juice of the hardware for another jump, so he tracked down that reality's version of Forge and forced him to help. And that's how he ended up back in the 1980s. Nope. Forge messed with the tech he installed so that Nimrod didn't jump in time, but hopped between dimensions to the main Marvel Universe, the 616, still significantly later than he'd intended to end up, so he tracked down that Forge and tried to get him to send him back. You'd think he'd have learned the first time. Right? So this Forge managed to transfer him to a new body, which briefly overwrote Nimrod's primary directive, forcing him to protect mutants, until the X-Kids showed up and, in a hilarious misunderstanding, damaged him enough for his original programming to resurface. Wait, how do they even know who Nimrod was? I thought he'd just been in the future at that point. And wouldn't he have been Bastion anyway? Oh, no, 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 that happened later. Or earlier, technically, depending on how you look at it. Or possibly both. Because time travel. And the Siege Perilous, plus some pretty heavy retcons. Oof. I know, right? He might as well be an honorary Summers by now. Anyway, they ended up activating Nimrod's built-in time machine, which threw him back into the time stream, only to be plucked out right at his original destination, albeit without his memories, by ripples from the temporal spatial claudication Doctor Strange used to stop Kulan Goth. What?! I'm Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 41st episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Fresh off our discussion with G. Willow Wilson last time around, we're diving back into Uncanny X-Men, and the stuff we're talking about today is from the middle of 1985. This is an era that I sort of think of as not exactly all over the place, but much, much less in arcs than what came before and after. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a continuing storyline. There are a number of factors that are going to continue going in the background, long game style. What do you mean a continuing storyline? There are like 12 continuing storylines. Well, yes, but it's all one master tapestry composed of various threads, some of which are pink because they're Nimrod, and some of which are red because they're all the Morlocks that Wolverine kills in one of the issues we're talking about. They're also running across multiple titles. So This is Uncanny Running Parallel to New Mutants, and again, we've mentioned this before, but one of the things that I, I keep noticing is how difficult it must be to follow one of these if you're not reading both, because they tie in very, very directly. I think the best modern analog would be um, the beginning of Bendis's runs on Uncanny and All-New X-Men, where you could, in theory, just buy one, but you'd be missing half the story, even when there wasn't a crossover. So with that in mind, who do we have on the team right now? It's sort of a transitional group. All right, so here in 1985, uh, we actually have Nightcrawler leading the team. Um, Cyclops and Storm are not around as the previous team leaders. Yeah, Cyclops is off trying really hard to have a normal life with Madeline Pryor. It's not going to last, but yeah, they're pretending. Storm is trying to sort of figure out who she is and what she wants now that she doesn't have her powers. So yeah, Nightcrawler is currently the field leader of the X-Men, and we also have Wolverine, Rogue, Shadowcat, and Kitty is now called Shadowcat and will be for quite a while. Colossus, and Rachel Summers, who doesn't have a code name at all. They're all back at the Xavier School now, alongside the New Mutants. And Xavier is around as well. He's been actually going out with the team pretty regularly now. Yeah, ever since back in the Brood Saga, his body was destroyed and rebuilt by the Shi'ar. He can now walk, which means he's been taking a much more active role. However, what we saw at the end of the last arc of Uncanny we covered was him getting beaten almost to death by a bunch of drunk and racist jerks. Almost hell. I mean, one of the first things we learn in Uncanny X-Men 193 is he did actually get beaten to death. 
the Morlocks healer presumably leveled up and gotten the raised dead spell and was able to resuscitate him, but he was actually dead. But it took so many gold pieces to get the spell components for that, it was ridiculous. I mean, the Morlocks aren't very rich as it is, so it was hard. So... Let's shelve that for a moment, because this is Claremont's 100th issue. Yeah, so the current run of X-Men, you know, the all-new, all-different era after Giant Size X-Men number one, started with Uncanny X-Men number 94, which was part of a two-part story, the second part of which was called War Hunt. Now, War Hunt was where one of the all-new, all-different new members, Thunderbird, actually died. This story is called War Hunt 2, and it's a direct sequel to that story in some ways, But I think for me, it's also kind of acknowledging just how far X-Men has come since Claremont started writing it by returning to some of the elements of that first story. Now, we know and we've seen via New Mutants that John Proudstar has a younger brother, James, who's taken up the codename Thunderbird and is currently a student at the Massachusetts Academy, which is as Emma Frost's boarding school. Yeah, they're basically the uh, New Mutants except more jerks and wearing more pink. They're super mod. And James, whom I think we're just going to call Thunderbird at this point, blames the X-Men, and especially Xavier, for his brother's death. Not entirely unreasonably. One of the first things we see in this issue is our buddy Banshee, Sean Cassidy, who is now retired and basically spending his days jogging and flirting with Moira McTaggart. I love the opening narration in this, because a lot of the time the opening narration's got dramatic buildup, and here it's really conversational and wry, and I really like it. Muir Isle, as he rounds the headland, beginning the last long stretch to home and hearth, Sean Casty's thoughts are on the stitch in his right side and the bitter cold pre-dawn air slicing deep into his lungs, and the look on his lady love's face when she sees her Christmas present. He circles the island every morning, a ten-mile run, and today he's making superb time, possibly his personal best. He's tired, but he feels like he can go on forever. In all his rough and tough helter-skelter life, he's never been happier or more at peace with his past. So, of course, he gets nailed. And, you know, I gotta say, I have really missed the jerk omniscient narrator that Claremont so specialized in in the old days. We're talking about how he's returning to some of his old story elements and tropes, and jerk omniscient narrator, I have missed you. I think that jerk omniscient narrator is in all of our hearts all the time. Is that why my heart has been sort of berating me at all times? Yes. Well, I should probably see a doctor anyway, just in case. So we cut away very quickly from Muir Island after Thunderbird identifies himself as a ghost because, of course, Banshee doesn't know that Thunderbird had a younger brother. Well, and he's wearing the original Thunderbird costume. He's not in his Hellions gear. He's got his brother's costume on. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, that James and John Prodstar have, I think at this point, exactly the same power set. It's kind of weird. I mean, they're both basically super strong and super fast, and that's kind of what they do. I think uh, enhanced senses as well, I believe, is yeah, part of Yeah, and you don't—you see a lot of siblings with very similar powers, but very few exact duplicates. But before we find out what he's up to, we cut back to the storyline that we mentioned earlier, which is Xavier waking up in the Morlock tunnels, having been revived and healed, and the Morlocks have dressed him in an elaborate bondage gear. Well, it's sort of like when you go into the hospital, they put you in scrubs like instead of your normal clothing this is just you know the more like equivalent of scrubs but the thing is it's not because the whole thing with hospital gowns is that they're designed to be easy to get people in and out of you know for easy medical access like can you imagine how difficult it is to put an unconscious person into tight leather pants maybe there's a morlock whose power that is i mean they have some pretty strange powers i i'm not quite sure what's up with that but i really love the idea of it being just what the morlocks do okay Hey, you remember that time Kitty was going to get married? It was garter belts and leather straps all around. Yeah, but that was for a wedding. But anyway, Xavier awakens, and he doesn't really remember what happened, and that's actually going to be quite significant later. 
But he does get a chance to talk to Callisto. He's never been down to the Morlock Tunnels before. This is his first time. And I really like the dynamic between these characters because they're both leaders of their people. They're both trying to protect a group of mutants from the outside world, but they have entirely different philosophies. And Callisto actually comments that she understands his philosophy, the way he deals with things, the way he's hoping for peaceful coexistence. And she says trying his way was how she got her scars. But that as long as Storm, who is, as you will recall, the current leader of the Morlocks, is in charge, she'll basically toe the line, even if she disagrees. And then Sunder comes in with a bunch of dead kids. Yeah, so again, something that's going to be significant, to underscore Callisto's point that it's not all sunshine and roses, one of the Morlocks, Sunder, comes in with the dead children of another Morlock, Annalie, saying that they've been murdered by humans. This is going to become extremely relevant to the plot, but I don't know if it's something whose backstory they ever really actually go into. As far as how the kids were actually killed. I feel slightly guilty because obviously this is supposed to be an emotionally resonant moment, and my first thought was who? Well, you know, dead kids are sad in general. Dead kids are sad in general, that is true. Dead kids are sad in general. The Rachel and Miles explained the X-Men story. How to write a superhero comic. <laughs> um, wow, that got really cynical really fast. So Xavier does head off toward the X-Mansion. And this is where we find out some of the stuff that we were discussing before, Rachel, about uh, Thunderbird and sort of what his deal is as far as trying to get revenge for the death of his brother. And speaking of things that got really cynical real fast, with him at this point are Empath and Roulette, two of the other Hellions. Now, we've met the Hellions before, mostly in New Mutants, and by and large, they're not terrible kids. Empath and Roulette are terrible kids. They're, they're t- they are horrible human beings. They're the worst kid in the neighborhood, just like Pokey from Earthbound. So Empath's deal is that he can manipulate people's emotions without them realizing they're being manipulated. Roulette can alter probability and give people bad luck. Empath has someone with him right now on a very short leash who he's been using to manipulate into believing that she's in love with him. And this is a character who readers would have been familiar with primarily through an animated series. This is actually her first appearance in the comics continuity, and that is Angelica Jones, Firestar. Yes, so I grew up on Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. I'm so sorry. Oh, you know, I didn't know any better. But yeah, so this was a TV show that was on from 81 to 83, the main characters of which were Spider-Man, Iceman from the X-Men, and Firestar. And uh, they actually originally wanted it to be Spider-Man, Iceman, and the Human Torch, but due to some rights issues, they couldn't get a Fantastic Four character on the show, so they created somebody new. She basically has fiery powers in the comics as opposed to the show. It's specified that they're actually microwave-based. So, you know, her battle cry is beep, beep, beep. They're also kind of horrible in that they literally give her cancer later in the comics run. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that. That's Yeah. That's really sad. Yeah. Well, I still love the character. And yeah, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, it's it's on Netflix, guys. You can watch it. It's a little rough, I'm not going to lie. There is there's at least one episode that all of the X-Men are on. That's one of like the three that I've seen because Miles decided that I needed remedial education in this, which I kind of disagree on having now seen some of it. Hey, hey, I only showed you three, okay? Okay, so if you want to see a cartoon version of Cyclops that is like even worse than the 90s cartoon Cyclops, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, right there. Yes. So anyway, this cartoon character is now in the comic. This is her first appearance as a member of the Hellions. We're actually going to learn a lot more about how she got there and her comic canonical origin in the Firestar miniseries, which comes out shortly after this. And which, spoiler, we're going to be talking about next week the x-men are in the danger room playing tag and as usual this is an x-men variant on a what would normally be a very simple game that involves cannonball blasting into all of them and trying to tag as many as possible and i've noticed that this is kind of 
a standby of the eras when Nightcrawler leads the team. The ways he has them train are almost always variations on games rather than combat simulations. He's doing stuff that does make sense as training. So in this case, tag, which is, as the X-Men play, it is basically a combat simulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, pretty much everything they do is. So the Morlock tunnels apparently lead to right outside the danger room, and Callisto returns the professor, who is is marginally more dressed. I think he's now wearing tight leather pants and a very, very low-cut raggedy tank top, which is incidentally almost exactly the outfit that he went off at Sam Guthrie for in The Last Ark of New Mutants. Right, yes, when they're in the church and Sam is wearing his Lila Shaney concert t-shirt, and Sam actually quotes back his line about, you know, how we're, we're a respectable school, not a collection of ragamuffins. To which the appropriate response, of course, is, yes, Sam, and when you have your own school and our headmaster, you can also dress however you want. <laughs> it's like how my old uh, creative writing teacher used to say that you couldn't write like Kerouac until you knew the rules. You had to know the rules to break the rules. To be fair, I think what you mainly need to write like Kerouac is a shit ton of speed. Oh, okay. And some serious racism. Well, she didn't mention either of those things, but maybe they were implied. So the X-Men are all together, and Thunderbird at this point contacted the X-Men, saying that he's got Sean, he's got Banshee, and he's going to kill him unless they find and confront him inside Cheyenne Mountain, which is also known as Valhalla, which is NORAD's base that that original story from X-Men 94 and 95 took place in. That is where the X-Men fought Count Nefaria and where John Proudstar died to stop Nefaria. Now... The X-Men decide not to try to get in touch with Norad, which strikes me as a really terrible idea. Well, it would just be a really awkward conversation. Hey, there's this dude and he died. Now his little brother wants to kill us. And so would you mind if we just headed over? No, it's way less awkward to just go. Well, we know that Xavier has zillions of contacts. You know, they could go through Super Doctor, Astronaut Peter Corbo. They could just be like, Pete, could you call them and be like, well, one of our guys got kidnapped. We just need to come in and, you know, blast down some walls and fight a super strong guy and we're good. I'd be happy to, Professor. After all, I invented Norad. And phone calls. And forethought. Exactly. But they don't. They spend about the same time it would take to call NORAD, talking about how it's going to be super risky for them to go in without calling NORAD. And that's significant. I want to talk about that because this is an issue and this is a storyline that really changes the X-Men's larger context in the Marvel Universe and their status. So that is going to become intensely relevant later. For now, it's just a little bit silly. They all suit up. Kitty's got a new costume. Take a drink. And I want to talk a little about Kitty's new costume because it is terrible. It's a B. Arthur jacket. Like, she's got this blue cocoon coat. All right. I have seen B. Arthur and Kitty Pride. You are no B. Arthur. It's this big sort of kite polygon, and she's got, like, a Ninja Turtle mask, and I don't really know what's happening It looks here. really comfortable, but it also looks like it would prevent her from raising her arms above shoulder level, which seems like a really massive liability for someone who's a ninja. But if she wanted to, like, uh, run around and make airplane noises and pretend to be an airplane, she is set. The thing is, though, you can almost see it gradually evolving toward what I think is, is going to be her first non-terrible costume since the blue and yellow, her sort of swashbuckler Excalibur costume that can kind of see the shape of it starting to form, but she doesn't quite have the details down yet. So the X-Men do successfully break into Valhalla. In the meantime, though, Empath and Roulette are here ostensibly to help Thunderbird, but really just to kind of fuck things up. And, and we should add that while the X-Men are breaking into Valhalla, Xavier, while he is alive and while he is superficially appears to be intact, is still in pretty bad shape. The Morlock's D&D healer burned out his powers bringing him back from the dead, and so he doesn't have a lot of stamina, and he doesn't really have a lot of access to his telepathy, and so he stays on the plane while the other X-Men go break into the NORAD base. Telepathy-wise, Rachel Summers is currently kind of helping coordinate the team. She's working with Xavier, but primarily she is the psionic link between everyone. And Nightcrawler is having a lot of trouble making decisions. Xavier's staying on the plane, and Nightcrawler's initial thought is that someone should stay with him, but Xavier says, no, I'll be okay, and Nightcrawler waffles, but finally sort of capitulates to that. 
And man, Nightcrawler is not a good leader. I think that's an interesting writing decision because obviously he's a very appealing, very sympathetic character. He's immensely good-hearted. He's charming. He's fun. He's got a strong sense of justice. But in terms of taking decisive action and acting wisely, he consistently doesn't do it quite right. Well, a while ago when we were talking about X-Men leaders, we talked about social leaders and task leaders. The shift from Cyclops to Storm and now Storm to Nightcrawler. And I think we were talking about how Storm was at that point the X-Men's task leader and Nightcrawler was their social leader. And so he was the one who was sort of all about connection and all about cohesion as a group and a unit. In a lot of ways as a leader, I think Nightcrawler and Cyclops are very, very direct inverses of each other because Nightcrawler is very, very good at connecting to people and he's very good at getting people to work together. And he is absolutely terrible at shelving his feelings for long enough to make tactical decisions. I like seeing that. I like seeing flaws in my heroes. I like when having somebody be in charge of something isn't necessarily a good idea. This is actually a really good lens on who Nightcrawler is and how he works. Yeah, and not to clarify, he doesn't do anything that's a spectacularly terrible plan, like nothing that results in cataclysm, but things do get a little more complicated because of decisions, like you said, Rachel, like having Xavier stay on the Blackbird and the X-Men go in as the field team. Well, and letting Xavier's preference override his instincts and initial call as a field leader. Yes, so Empath, as we were saying, has infiltrated NORAD, and he uses his powers to basically take the increasing anti-mutant sentiment in the country that we've been seeing since Dazzler the movie came out. Yeah, and we've been seeing a steady, steady build of that. And I should clarify, the anti-mutant sentiment is because of the fictional movie, Dazzler the movie, not because of the truly questionable trade paperback about that fictional movie. Although it should be. Yeah, I think I might like mutants a little less after reading that. I mean, I feel like I like comics a little less after reading (laughs) that. But it's so far mostly been popular sentiment. We've seen it explored in God Loves Man Kills in terms of, of religious extremism, but we haven't seen is how and whether and to what extent it translates to government policy. There are a lot of, you know, Val Cooper, Henry Peter Guy conversations, but not a lot of action yet. And that is really going to change here. And so in this atmosphere of increasing distrust, it's not hard for Empath to use his emotional manipulation powers to turn that slight suspicion and racism into outright murderness. Murderness. And so all of the people working at NORAD are like, all right, mutants are infiltrating our base. Let us kill them all. Man. Empath is the worst. He is truly the worst. He's like he's like mastermind levels of a jerk. Mastermind at least creates narratives around his horrible manipulative bullshit. Empath is just horrible and manipulative. He's not even creatively horrible. He's just horrible. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden the stakes are very much raised because it's not just let's infiltrate this place and, you know, get our friend back from James Proudstar. It's let's do all of that while the entire government is trying to kill us. With robots. Yeah. So they have these things called sec bots, I guess security bots, presumably. Which I kept on reading as sex bots. I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) Send in the sex bots, fellow (laughs) NORAD guys. Our job is awesome. NORAD is baffling. Hey, man, just because it's not your kink doesn't mean it's not somebody's kink. Some people like giant spider robots. So there's a big fight, and the X-Men split up, the Hellions and Thunderbird and the NORAD guys are all in different places. Eventually, Wolverine takes out Empath, who just faints when he's being threatened. Nightcrawler takes out Roulette, and Rogue takes out Firestar. And a running theme in this, Rachel Summers is telepath of the team. And as the telepath, her job is periodically to be radar, to track someone down. And every time that happens, she freaks the hell out. And we've seen why in past issues. In the dark future from whence she hails, she was used as something called a hound, which is basically a mutant with compatible powers used by the humans who ran the world to track down mutants who had fled and capture them for presumably torture or execution or whatever. So Thunderbird is indeed confronted by Wolverine and Shadowcat. They managed to track him down. 
and Thunderbird wins. He uses this knockout gas, nerve gas, I think, actually. Does he or is Nora just piping it in at that point? Well, whichever it is, he basically has his victory. He has, he has slain some of the people he blames for the death of his brother. Or at least apparently, if he leaves them in the room, they're going to suffocate and die. Yeah, and he then hesitates, though. And turns and realizes, wait a minute, this little girl wasn't even there when my brother died. Wolverine was there, but it really wasn't his fault. I I can't let them die like this. This isn't right. Yeah, and Wolverine has spent the fight talking about how much he identified with Thunderbird, which ironically is probably kind of what killed Thunderbird, because being redundant to Wolverine is effectively a death sentence in the (laughs) X-Men. True, true. But I feel like there's this very distinct division in the Hellions, where you have the evil by circumstance Hellions, and then you just have the evil Hellions. This story particularly puts Thunderbird very, very firmly in the first camp. And Empath very firmly in the other. And so Thunderbird says, well, okay, so I shouldn't take my anger out on them, or I guess the rest of the X-Men now that I think about it, but you know who is in charge? The jerk who convinced my brother to do this suicidal mission and manipulated him into doing so, Charles Xavier, he's the one I need to take out. Yeah, no, Thunderbird, you're kind of an asshole, but you're not wrong. So he goes after Xavier, he's able to find him inside the Blackbird, and comes after him with a knife, and Xavier is basically helpless because his telepathy, like you said, Rachel, is pretty much out of commission. Xavier says, well, okay, all I really have is my words, so I'm going to use those. He knew John Proudstar, and John Proudstar could not have ever been manipulated. He was way too strong-willed that he chose his path. He chose his path nobly, and in doing so, he also chose his death nobly. Which is kind of funny, because if I recall, Xavier did actually kind of manipulate him into joining the team by calling him a coward. There is that. But, I mean, when Thunderbird died, Xavier's completely right. Like, he was the one that decided to attempt to, uh, well, punch Count Nefaria's airplane to death. Uh, Which didn't even really work. Xavier does charitably leave out the fact that Thunderbird's death, while noble, was also really dumb. You're brother did that one all on his own, James. Which is probably for the best since uh, James is, is pretty angry. Xavier says that if knowing that James still blames him, then he should kill him. And James finds that he can't. He just drops the knife and falls to his knees and calls himself a coward, a failure as a man, a failure as an Apache. Charles Xavier is amazing because his ability to wield guilt as an actual physical weapon is just unsurpassed. The thing is, in this case, I mean... Oh no, it's appropriate in this case, and he does it well, and he does it for the right reasons, but it's still that. It's still totally that. (laughs) But he does so with compassion, you know? And there's actually a quote I want to read in response to what James says. James, listen to me. A coward? Because you could not find within yourself the capacity to murder in cold blood. Because you realized that to do so would not honor your brother's memory, but desecrate it? You have nothing to be ashamed of. Such self-knowledge does not come easily. To face and accept it takes the courage of a warrior born. And, you know, this is exactly what James needs to hear. You know, Xavier, despite his admittedly many flaws, he's a really good mentor. He's really good at taking care of people, at being able to work with them on their own level to get them where they need to be. Well, and I think over the last few years, and definitely with the advent of the New Mutants, he's made a really significant transition from giving orders to trying to understand his students. So everyone heads back to the X-Mansion. Uh, Empath and Roulette are uh, tied up in a sleep upstairs, one of the characters points out. Oh my. But yeah, Thunderbird and Firestar, who were basically, I'm not going to say innocents in this, but are clearly good people. I mean, it becomes evident very quickly that Firestar was manipulated by Empath completely. And it's worth pointing out that Thunderbird didn't want to involve the other Hellions in this, and he tried to send Empath and Roulette home repeatedly, ask them to back off and stop. Like, they saw him doing this and were like, oh, fun, let's go mess with the X-Men, let's bring Firestar along because it's entertaining to string her along with this. 
Thunderbird and Firestar both feel, for various and, and mostly incorrect reasons, responsible for all of the horrible shit that Empath and Roulette did. They are, in fact, surprised when the X-Men reveal that, no, they're not going to, you know, turn them into the cops. Xavier says, everyone deserves a second chance. Even your teammates, sedated and sleeping upstairs, to keep them out of mischief. This perhaps does not serve the law, but to my mind it well serves justice. He's building on something Nightcrawler said earlier, which I think is the definitive philosophy of the X-Men going forward into this era that this starts, which is, if society forces us to become a law unto ourselves, then it will be tempered with mercy. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, society is kind of doing that, because... After the X-Men are seen breaking into NORAD and causing a bunch of damage, and NORAD was already really emotionally heightened, so the X-Men are portrayed from this point on clearly, clearly as villains, and mutants, you know, already aren't being seen very nicely. This just exacerbates that and is exacerbated by it. Yeah, this isn't Rogue smashing through the helicarrier, because, you know, Rogue is a former villain. Rogue is someone who's got out-of-control powers, who they can reasonably represent as, and I apologize for this in advance, a rogue element. Aww. This is all of the X-Men in their uniforms, breaking into a government base and wreaking massive havoc. Yeah, it, it really does not look good at all. And that's really going to set up the new status quo for a while, and that's also going to begin one of the major themes of this era of X-Men, which is the X-Men as these heroes who are sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them. I want to talk about that for a minute because it's a phrase that we've been hearing variations of since the Silver Age, and this is really the first time it's been true. They're sort of on the fringes in terms of superheroes. You know, they're not the Fantastic Four. They're not the Avengers. They're not in the center of the Marvel Universe. They're definitely not a government team, but they're distinctly superheroes, even if they're superheroes who are a little scary. At this point, not only is popular sentiment turning massively against mutants and the government now following suit, but the X-Men are now officially terrorists. It's honestly always a dark time to be an X-Man, but I think this is one of the darker ones. You know, the team has really lost a lot of their leadership. They have the entire world turned against them, and they're about to have some really bad problems crop up. And that means that the stakes for them are very, very high. And the decisions that they make to continue again fighting for a world which does genuinely hate and fear them at this point, maybe for the first time, start to matter a lot more. Even though they're hated and feared, they still want to do the right thing when they're needed, and what they find out in the next issue is, as the title tells us, Juggernaut's back in town. Now, it's funny you should mention that, because a lot of the response to X-Men is, you know, knee-jerk paranoia about mutants. That's what's happening with Juggernaut here. In fact, that happens a lot with Juggernaut. I feel like a lot of Juggernaut fights start with Kane Marco just striding into town and being like, yeah, I'm going to grab a sandwich and a beer and someone going, Juggernaut! <laughs> and everyone freaking out and starting a fight. And, you know, he's a gentleman who will not shy away from or turn down fisticuffs. So he escalates things pretty quickly, but he doesn't start a lot of the fights that he gets into. It's true. And yeah, in this case, he's just hanging out and going to a bank, but the news is still freaking out, and that's what wakes up the X-Men. Now, we've talked about... Wait, does he go to the bank in his Juggernaut costume and just be like, yeah, I'd like to you know, make a deposit? No, no, he's got some weird sort of like sweater vest thing over... Yeah, I, I think he came into town as the Juggernaut because he enjoys freaking people out, but then he's just wandering around as Kane Marco, and I guess people don't really know that it's the same guy. He's just today. a regular old redheaded 11-foot-tall guy. So, yeah, the, the X-Men wake up to all of these radio notifications. And this is our Danger Room montage, is the X-Men waking up. Yeah, yeah, normally you'll have them training in the Danger Room to get an introduction to all the characters, since in this era especially, Marvel was very concerned about having things be accessible to new readers. Accessible? Ex that's a stretch, even for us. Um, I regret nothing. Yeah, and so we see, like, Nightcrawler in bed. Oh, but not this time. Let someone else handle it. I don't want to hear anymore. I don't want to know. No, 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 no. I want to point out specifically that the reason he's so 
reluctant to get up is that apparently Nightcrawler watches the Crimson Pirate every time it's on TV without fail. And it was on at two in the morning last night. And he was thus honor bound to stay up all night watching this movie. And I have never identified more with Nightcrawler than I do in that context. Except for you at Speed Racer. I totally get where you're coming from, Nightcrawler. Sometimes you just got to be up at two in the morning to watch the Crimson Pirate. <laughs> yep. And we see, uh, you know, Kitty just phases her hand through the alarm radio, which is the most effective way of hitting snooze I've ever heard of. I wonder if she's just got a big stack of them somewhere because she's destroyed it now. <laughs> That's true. We see Colossus wake up, and he's actually really excited because the last time he fought Juggernaut, he got his ass kicked. And uh, he's so excited that he turns into his big metal form and his pajamas rip and explode around him. I'd like to point out that this is the first of like three times this happens in a four issue period. Like he goes through pajamas like Kitty goes through alarm clocks. Um, it kind of reminds me of the American dub of the Miyazaki movie Castle in the Sky, where one of the lines they added in specifically in the American release was there's these two dudes who are squaring off and they're big and burly, and one of them like does the raw thing and the buttons pop off his shirt and yeah so in the american dub they have some little kid exclaim right before From off that screen. before that hey make your shirt explode but there's no kid yelling that presumably in colossus's bedroom that we, we could know just of. we could just add a little word balloon with like white out and we are not desecrating our comics that's not allowed especially because we read this one digitally <laughs> we are not desecrating the ipad and we see rogue uh showering at the time and the main detail i like with wait this wait is so that, we're seeing someone showering who's not storm uh for once yes oh my god but yeah the thing i like about this is she's listening uh to a band called nazgul on the radio so nazgul you may recognize the word from lord of the rings they're witch king cronies who go around on the scary horses but there is a another level of meta to this one. Yeah, because Nazgul was a band in this old book called The Armageddon Rag by George R.R. R. Martin, the writer of A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, Game of Thrones, back before he got big at all. Like, I really love all the weird underground references to things that only super hardcore geeks would know. So you know what I really want to do? I've been thinking about this just in context of all of the Niven stuff and New Mutants. I want to start an X-Men book club that reads the books referenced in this and the stuff that Claremont's drawing from. So like, you know, the Niven and Martin and all of those and just discusses them sort of outside. Because it's actually a really fantastic sci-fi fantasy reading list. Yeah, Chris Claremont had good taste, no doubt. Um, And we see Wolverine jogging barefoot in a fuchsia gi in the snow, which I mainly enjoy because that means that he specifically bought a fuchsia gi. Dude's got nothing to prove. It's true, it's true. And the saddest part is that we see Rachel Summers, who is reminded by the part of the news report that mentions the Fantastic Four is not able to be reached, that in her future, her partner, her boyfriend, was Franklin Richards, the son of Reed and Sue Richards, and now he's dead, just like everyone she knows. And I mean, for me, there's a touch in that sequence that is like just completely heart-wrenching Rachel Summers moment, which is that she apparently sleeps hugging a framed photograph of scott and jane her life is really terrible i feel awful it for is her. awful i mean well we know that she will kind of get her shit together and join excalibur and have amazing adventures and start wearing bright colors but she is so sad at this point and we talked actually a lot about her last episode and about her arc it's hard especially as someone who's familiar with her mostly through excalibur to go back and just see terrible point she started at and how long that persists yeah although there is a certain amount of hope that makes it a little less painful just knowing that she is going to come out of it and i'm not going to say she's going to get a happy ending because there is end of grays and that's not happy for anybody but by and large she'll at least have some some good things happen in the future she gets to be alan davis written for a pretty long time which is a good way to live your life as a superhero or as anyone i want to be written by alan davis i just want alan davis hair 
That's also reasonable. Like the, the amazing swoop. Yeah, like Doug Ramsey yeah. has that. Yeah. Um, Yours so, does that sometimes. I, I have never been able to actually accomplish it. So anyway, the X-Men are staking out the bank to make sure everything goes well, and it's going fine until Nimrod shows up. Now, Nimrod is the dude from the cold open, and Nimrod is a special gentleman who is a sentinel from the Earth-811 future. But like a super advanced sentient sentinel. Who has lost his memory. So all he knows is that his job is to protect people and he sees the most immediate way to do that as to support and uphold the status quo. He's still living with Jaime, the guy who found the necklace in the fish. <laughs> my name is Jaime Rodriguez. I found a necklace in a fish. And now a super robot lives with me and tutors my son in math. P.S. The necklace turned everything until that restaurant medieval times for a while, but it got better, so it's fine, and I got unmurdered. So Nimrod, when we were talking about him this morning, you made the point, and I think it's an excellent one, that Nimrod, intentional or no, is at this point a metaphor for the pitfalls of populist democracy. Basically, when you have bigotry that's sort of widespread enough and it starts to affect policy, that's when you see it not just impacting people who are, you know, getting beaten up by racists or whatever, but that's when you start seeing it messing with the way social policies work, with the way people's day-to-day lives work, and he's sort of this very overt symbol of that. He is this nigh-omnipotent super robot who wants to do the right thing and entirely defines the right thing as what the majority wants. Yeah, and you mentioned that you could see that as sort of an illustration of one of the ways that government is described as being necessary in general. The idea is that when you're in a position of enough power, your responsibility is split. It's not just to the will of the majority, but it's to the protection of minority. Tyranny of the masses, the robot. The tyranny of the masses apparently isn't kind of blocky and has a bright pink face. I really don't know what's happening with Nimrod's character design. I like a lot of the character designs from this era, and Nimrod is not one of them. Yeah, I'm really curious what went into that, because he looks to me like someone sort of started to draw sort of the the outline wireframe for a body that they were going to fit in, but never quite finished it and then just inked it. That's Nimrod. That's what he looks like. He doesn't even have the purple toboggan cap that most Sentinels get to keep their heads warm with. So there's a big fight, and Nimrod, what we learn about him here is that he basically can counter everybody. He just kicks the asses of Juggernaut and the X-Men. Well, and he attacks, we should add, because he knows Kane Marco is Juggernaut as a criminal, but he's not just there for him. He's also there for the X-Men, because he decides that his job is to take down mutants. And by take down, we do in fact mean kill. He is not shy about killing anybody he sees as a criminal. Yes, until dead. And the X-Men can't stop him until they collectively team up via Rogue with all of their powers and her own is able to take them out. Someone asked us about X-Men team-up moves that don't have names and I think episode 11, and we've seen this one twice now, so I think it's time to add this to the list. So where everyone merges uh, into one big super mutant, basically? I, I, I vote we call it the Voltron special. Um, so Rogue finally takes Nimrod out with a Voltron special. Yes, and uh, my favorite part of that is when she hits him over the head with a steel girder, the sound effect is BAKONG! Oh, that's a good one. It's a very good one. And after that, the X-Men go their separate ways with Juggernaut. There's really no quarrel. You know, Juggernaut wasn't doing anything bad at the time. And launch into Uncanny X-Men 195. Now, 195 is less a sequel to 194, I think, than it is to 193, because it's picking up a lot of threads that were dropped there. But first, a scene from a nightmare you have actually had. Before we get into this, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the Power Pack, because they're the team that shows up in this issue. Good, because I love the Power Pack. So the Power Pack were a team of kids uh, that had their own comic back in the 80s. Yeah, specifically the Power Kids. That's their last name. Yes. And they were created by Louise Simonson, who was a longtime editor of the X-Books, although at this point she's not, and June Brigman. So female creative team. That's cool. They were ages 5 through 12 when the book started, and they were given powers by a dying space pony dude. Um, they had a sentient star. It was a star- space alien who had a sentient starship and looked like a unicorn. 
I feel like the Power Pack's origin story is the kind of thing that a kid would come up with as the coolest origin story ever. Yes, it's sort of like action Lisa Frank, which I love. So yeah, there are four of these kids. The uh, oldest is 12, and that's Alex. The youngest is 5, and that's Katie. And in between, we have Julie and Jack. Now, Katie Power is the one who's going to be the most relevant to this issue. At the moment, she can sort of absorb energy from stuff around her and then throw it out in these bursts. And her codename, because of that, is Energizer. Uh, The kids also change codenames every time they change powers, which I think is rad. This opens with them out of their superhero personas. They are waking up. It's thundering outside, and all four of the power kids are freaked out enough that they have come and piled into their parents' bed. And as soon as their parents are past that initial grogginess, they say, wait, who are these kids in our bed? We don't have any children. Are you kids okay? And like you said, like, this is a nightmare you have had. You, the listener, have probably had this nightmare. Where you wake up in the power's bed and they just have no idea who you are. But on the upside, your dad has a good beard at least, so that's a thing. Their parents are are very cool people, if I recall correctly. They are, but yeah, and so they kind of freak out and they run and they talk to their superintendent who also doesn't remember them. Well, no, and they say, you know, we live here, we'll show you our rooms, and they take their parents to what should be their bedrooms and all of their stuff is gone. And their superintendent doesn't recognize them, so they freak out. No, their lunch boxes are gone from the kitchen, there is no evidence evidence that they live, they've lived there and no one knows who they are. They kind of regroup on, on the street and it's raining very hard because of course it is just freaking out and like half of them are crying and they're trying to figure out what to do and they quickly realize now wait a minute we just met some people called the Morlocks who live in the sewers and one of them had the ability to erase people's memories or change those memories and another one had just lost her kids. Maybe this is related. I think this is a good segue to talking about how the power pack intersects and interacts with the rest of the Marvel Universe. We've seen the Morlocks mostly through the lens of the X-Men, which is a pretty mature book as Marvel titles go. The power pack meet the Morlocks because they see a kitten who some mean kids have captured and, and, and tied a can to its tail and it seems really distressed and it runs into the sewers and they're trying to catch it so they can get the can off. They're nice kids. They want to make the kitten happy. This, by the way, is in Power Pack number 11. Number 12 is where most of the Morlock stuff after that shows up. And it's adorable. Yeah, so that's sort of a lighthearted, low-ish stake story. This one is not. And I mean, if you, um, we'll put this in the As Mentioned post, but the cover to this issue? Okay, wait, seriously? It's Wolverine holding the five-year-old youngest power up by her costume with his claws out about to impale her. Which absolutely does not happen in this issue, by the way. No, I mean, Wolverine, like, does mostly nice things. I mean, he does murder a ton of Morlocks, to be fair, but they're does mean Morlocks. Does he actually Morlocks. murder them? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Killing people in tunnels is what he does. <laughs> He's the best at it, though. It's a really specific skill set. Well, you know, it's great for some jobs. You just put it on your resume, and maybe it's relevant, and maybe it's not, but there it is, just a single bullet point. But the thing with the power pack I want to go back to is that they are children. They're not the new mutants. They don't have a grown-up who calls the shots. When they intersect with the larger parts of the Marvel Universe, the tone of the stuff around them tends to change pretty drastically. And this issue is definitely a dark one. I mean, they head down into the Morlock Tunnels, and they're pretty quickly captured by Morlocks who are kind of waiting for them. Only Katie, the five-year-old, gets away, but not before Mask reaches out and, like, flesh mangles her face with his powers. And so she's found by some cops, who she attempts to blow up briefly because she's freaked out. Well, Um, she's a five-year-old! who has just been essentially cast out of her house, whose parents don't recognize her. Her siblings, who are the only people who, you know, still knew her, who she trusted were gone. Five-year-old with superpowers kind of fundamentally terrifying even on its own. I mean, I'm 32 and I don't think I would handle that very well either. Right. So, yeah, Kitty Pride at this point is hanging out in the X-Mansion and sees on the news what's happened. And she's like, wait, I recognize that girl from Power Pack number 12 where I guest starred. We've got to get her out. This isn't okay. Yeah, that's Katie Power. Oh, and Kitty's got a new costume, by the way. 
take a drink but savor it because this is basically the costume that she's going to be wearing for a long time and it's the, the one that we'll see become her standard look at least in the first lot of Excalibur. Yeah, for years and years and years and at least it's a pretty decent costume as opposed to some of its predecessors like the immediate predecessor. It's swashbuckly. Yes. So yeah, they head to the hospital to rescue her and successfully do so. Kitty's leading the team at this point. Nightcrawler is away for unspecified reasons and I gotta say Nightcrawler's not a great leader. Kitty is an incredibly good leader. She is. Is she officially leading the team or is she just kind of taken charge? She's just sort of taken charge at this point, but she's very good at it. I mean, she's only 15 years old, but she's really smart. She's really decisive. And while she's certainly strange and eccentric, she's at least willing to both make the hard calls and know what those calls should be most of the time. Something that I think, you know, the X-Men have done a good job of emphasizing is that leadership is a skill. So they rescue Katie Power and Kitty does her best to comfort her, which works, you know, pretty well. She gives her a special jacket that makes her an honorary X-Man and is kind of adorable. And they head to the Morlock tunnels to try to find her siblings and find out just what the hell happened with her family. And very quickly after doing so, they find that all of the Power Kids stuff, you know, their beds and all of their toys and, you know, their lunch boxes and stuff, it's all in the Morlock tunnels. And then Annalise shows up with the other Power Kids who are wearing, you know, your typical questionable Morlock garb and whose faces have been reshaped by masks, similarly to how Katie's was. And who believe that Annalise is their mother. Because the other Morlock we mentioned, Beautiful Dreamer, can do exactly that. Yeah, she has rewritten their memories. And man, this is so sad and weird and horrible. But the crux of it is they're at an impasse until Callisto storms in, discovers what Annalie has done, and basically says, okay, yeah, this does not stand. This is not cool. We do not do this shit. Yeah, specifically, we don't target these kids. They're friends of the Morlocks. We don't target the X-Men. They're friends of the Morlocks. And this is just not right. Also, Storm will totally stab us to death. (laughs) Yes. And she basically says, Annalie, if you defy me like this again, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to have to face you in the ring and kill you. Basically, Annalie is, is setting herself up to commit suicide by Callisto. Yeah. You, you see the brokenness in her, and it's really hard. I mean, yes, clearly she has orchestrated a terrible thing, but it's really hard not to feel bad for her. She just was lonely. She just missed her children who were murdered. And Katie Power sees that, and she says, We already have parents, but you can be our honorary grandmother. And she hugs her, and she says they're going to come back and visit, and it's the sweetest And that she can come to Thanksgiving. And I would like to point out that the Power Kids' parents don't know that they're superheroes and don't know about any of this. So this is going to be really fun to explain when she does show up for Thanksgiving. I feel like everything that happens in the Power Kids' life is probably very challenging to explain. This is our honorary grandma. We found her in the sewer. (laughs) She hangs out with a wizard, but his powers broke because he resurrected a bald guy in bondage gear. (laughs) Power pack show and tell must be so great. (laughs) Yup. But I want to talk a little bit about Callisto here. You know, seeing her in the the last couple issues, she's been developed very much as this honorable and interesting and layered antagonist. And one of the things that this issue in particular kind of drives home is how much she has in common with Storm as a leader. Because Callisto cares a lot about the Morlocks. I mean, she will go to the mat for them at any time. Her code of priorities is that the Morlocks come first. But she also has very distinct personal code of honor and she is very much defined you know as herself and as a character a little bit separate from that allegiance yeah every every time she shows up i always enjoy it and that's pretty much how that one wraps up and i believe we are uh running out of time so let's go to some questions smiley rk asks started reading the x-men in march of last year and i'm coming to the end of claremont's run just about hitting the inferno story my question is do you think it's important for people to read all the crossover titles in inferno all the spider-man daredevil and avenger titles in x-men crossovers if yes what if i'm only interested in the x storylines will i miss important points i'm a completist in video games i want to do absolutely every side quest get every item and in mmos when i used to play them before vowing to never do so again 
I had to learn that that's impossible. There's just too much stuff. You're never going to do it all. You're never going to see it all. And that's very much the case in the Marvel Universe. If you're an X-Men reader, reading all of the X-Men stuff is already plenty. In fact, it could be argued that that itself is too much. So with something like Inferno, I mean, yes, everything is going to tie in, but really by and large, the way crossovers are handled at that point, you can just focus on the X-Men stuff and be fine. You might have something mentioned or referenced that you're not going to understand if you haven't read Daredevil number whatever, but generally speaking, the editors are going to have a little note, you know, see the now classic Daredevil number whatever, and then at that point you can follow it or not, or you can go to Wikipedia or the Marvel Comics database or not. Now, in modern crossovers, that's a little different. Usually with that, there's going to be the big central event book, like Avengers vs. X-Men or Axis or whatever. And then everything will tie in in the existing ongoing titles of all the characters that are involved. With that, if you read like the central storyline, if you even care about that, and then the tie-ins in the books you're already reading, again, you're usually going to be fine. So you might miss a couple things, but I would say just stick with the X-Men stuff unless it's a literal crossover where it says to be continued in Spider-Man number 50,000. My general rule with tie-ins in books is to follow the characters I care about. I don't really care how Inferno affects Spider-Man. I would skip that book. I care how Excalibur interacts with it, because Excalibur ties into it really, really, really tangentially. So, you know, I'd pick that one up because it's a series I like and characters I like and care about. So I would say with tie-ins, unless you are, for example, obliged by Patreon Milestone to review every single book in a line, read the stuff that interests you. You can always catch back up. We live in an age where out-of-print is a relative concept, especially with recent material considering digital options, so you can always go back. So, an anonymous listener asks us, Hey Rachel and Miles, love the podcast. What would you say the definitive version of Magneto is? Scene chewing Silver Age dick dastardly, the more antagonistic foil to Xavier like in God Loves Man Kills, the new mutants teacher, the separatist leader of the Acolytes, every X-Fan's source of alcoholism, Zorn, or some other iteration? I think my favorite Magneto is one that exists in two iterations. Noble antagonist Magneto and antihero Magneto. The Magneto I like is the Magneto who does the wrong things for the right reasons whose belief system makes sense to him, who is passionate about it, and who's genuinely working for what he sees as a greater good. He's never easy. He's never got a harmonious relationship with the X-Men. He's always got sort of that fire and that antagonism. But he's sympathetic, and he recognizes ethical complexity in what he does and decisions that he makes. Like, that is the Magneto that I find fascinating, and that is the Magneto that I come back to as the X-Men's definitive, not villain, but antagonist. There you have it. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our website, rachelandmiles.com. Rachelandmiles.com also hosts a bunch of additional content, companion posts to every um, episode, essays, fan art, and much, much more. We are completely listener-supported, and everything we do is made possible by our awesome supporters through Patreon. Thank you all so much, as always. If you're not a supporter but you'd like to become one, check out the link at the top of our page. Next week, we will be back with Teen Angst and everyone's favorite, Exploding Ponies. As we learn about the early days of Angelica Jones, the one and only Firestar. (laughs) 